Hey everybody in the listening audience, welcome back to the Naga Notes podcast. I'm your host, Jake Wiskirchen, proud co-owner of Zephyr Wellness, which is also a sponsor of this show. Please go to zephyrwellness.org to check out what we have to offer or follow us on all the usual social media platforms, Instagram in particular, Facebook, YouTube for sure, and uh, this channel. Also, thanks to Audible for sponsoring our show. If you go to audibletrial.com slash notes, you can get a free 30-day trial and have access to their completely unmatched selection of audio content. You even get a free audio download. So grab an audio book, download it, keep your audio book even if you decide to cancel the free 30-day trial, and life goes on. But you probably won't cancel the free 30-day trial. You'll probably subscribe. audibletrial.com slash notes to sign up and get yourself involved there. Uh, this interview is with a really fascinating gal. Uh, her name's Brittany Phillips, and she's a licensed professional counselor in the state of Georgia in the U.S. Our conversation is wide-ranging, but we mostly talk about how people can uh, deal with trauma, and in particular trauma you know, with the pandemic, but also generational trauma that may be uh, experienced through racism or cultural divides and that sort of thing. So I had a good time talking to her, and I think you'll have a good time listening to her. Thanks again. It's always humbling to know that people take time out of their day to listen to what we have to say on this show, and we don't ever want that to go unacknowledged. So thank you for continuing to support and share our content. As I always say, it doesn't do any good locked up in my head. Please feel free to spread it around so that other people can heal as well. Without further delay, this is my interview with Brittany Phillips. Enjoy. Welcome back, listening audience. Thank you for, again, downloading our content. We appreciate it. And it's always humbling to uh, know that people carve out time from their you know, days to, to spend it with whatever we have to say, which is still mind-bending for me, that people would take their precious time and uh, think so highly of what we do that they would, they would listen to us. Um, so today's episode, we have Brittany Phillips, and she's a licensed professional counselor in Georgia. You're in Atlanta. Hello, Brittany. How are you? Hey, I'm great. How are you? Awesome. Um, I'm up here in Nevada. Everybody's familiar with that if they listen to the podcast uh, for any length of time uh, in the Marino Sparks area. It's not at all near Vegas. It's a six hour <laughs> drive. Please don't make that geographic mistake. Um, <laughs> and, you're, and you're in Atlanta and you are a counselor there, but I'll let you finish introducing yourself. Yeah, so I'm a licensed therapist here in Atlanta, Georgia. And um, I guess you could say the area that I kind of um, I'm passionate about. Some people say, oh, an expert in. And I feel like, yeah, I'm not an expert in anything yet. I'm always learning and growing. But I'm very passionate about working with individuals who've experienced trauma, um, who struggle with anxiety, depression, or have experienced grief and loss. And I would say after the year we've had, I think we all probably can fit in one of those categories um, of experiencing some of that. So that's a little bit about the areas that I'm really passionate about and the work that I do. Um, I also have a passion for uh, speaking to the faith-based community about the intersection of psychology and spirituality. So a little bit about my passions. I am really excited to get into that because those are two areas. I think one, the, the trauma anxiety area where people are curious um, and they, and I think they want to know the delineation of like when something bleeds into something else, you know, the, the severity scale, so to speak, but also the, the integration, uh, I love that you said intersection cause we use the intersection of guns and mental health for walk the talk America. Uh, so intersection yeah, cool. is awesome. And, um, and talk about 
faith, spiritual faith and, um, and psychology, because I think a lot of the times those stand across a kind of a self-imposed chasm as well. And, Mm -hmm. um, and it's high time we stop doing that because people need to heal. So in the meantime, though, what I want to know is, um, where are you originally from there or did you like move there from somewhere else? Like what, what's the story? How'd you get into the field? Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So, no, I was born and raised in a town called Rockford, Illinois, which is west of Chicago. Um, So I moved to Atlanta when I was about 15. My parents moved here um, for better job opportunities. And so I went to high school here, ended up staying here, went to undergrad at Georgia State University. Um, My major had nothing to do with psychology or counseling. I was... uh, in PR and music management. So I really wanted to work in the music industry. Um, I have a lot of ties to the music industry. My family has a, works in the music industry. So I was like, this is what I'm doing. So I dabbled into that, did a little bit of that. Um, also really interested in fashion. So I worked as a stylist, um, worked at a couple of high-end retail stores. And so was kind of excited living that life. Um, and I got married um, at 25. And I would say that first year of marriage was really tough. It was very challenging. And that is my, that was my first experience with counseling, me and my husband going to counseling. And I think through that experience, um, it was just such a healing experience. And so that was when I realized, man, this is what I want to do. We had an amazing therapist. Her name is Abby. And she, just the way that she walked through those dark moments with us. And um, it it was just a transformational experience. And so I said, I think I want to do this. So I think, I don't remember how old I was, uh, maybe early thirties. I said, I'm going back to grad school. And so I went to Mercer and got my degree in clinical mental health. And that was kind of how I got into this. Yeah. Your agency, is it just you or do you uh, have employees or assistants? Do you host, you know, students or interns, anything like that? No, it's just me for now. Uh, I have a very small practice. I also do some work with the um, school district here in Georgia. And so that takes up a lot of my time. And then I love to do conversations like these. So, you know, I can't have a large practice. Um, I do a lot of speaking engagements as well. So it's just me at, um, at Phillips Psychotherapy. What do you what do you speak on when you do the engagements? Yeah, so that it kind of ranges from a lot of things. So uh, a lot of requests that I get is um, on anxiety um on grief and loss uh like we said earlier mental health and spirituality um how does that work kind of empowering our uh, faith leaders to embrace uh discussions about mental health and empower the people that they lead to you know seek professional help um, outside of prayer um and so a lot of the topics and conversations kind of resolve around those revolve around those things do you find yourself talking to groups of faith leaders or do you go to individual churches and talk to the congregations? Like, how does that work? I'm really curious in doing more of that, I think, in my my sphere. Yeah, it's so it's more so uh, talking to groups of leaders. So like last week I did a call um, with a group of pastors from Florida. They have a, a denomination, an organization. So um, one of the bishops that was over this organization, he reached out and said, you know, hey, I'm having a meeting with 80 of my pastors, and I would love if you can come in and talk about grief and loss and how do we help our members through the holidays, you know. And so I went in, did a Zoom call with them for about an hour and just really talked about, like, 
grief, what is grief, what is mourning, what's the difference, um, talked about things that influence the way that we grieve, and then gave them some like practical tips and tools that they can use um, when helping those that are grieving or different things that they can put in place in their ministry to help those that are grieving. So um, usually it's groups of leaders. Um, occasionally a church will bring me in to talk about like to their congregation, um, but usually it's um, the leaders that I'm talking to. And I, and I love that because I feel like that's where it needs to start. You know, when we have the support of the leaders, um, then it's easy to bring everyone else on board when you have that support. I a hundred percent agree. And I love that you're doing that. And I, I like I said, I want to do it more and uh, maybe I'll hit you up, you know, afterward offline to talk about it. But I, I think for the listening audience, if you don't mind, what I want to spend a little time on just because you brought it up is that, that grief and loss, what's the difference between grieving and mourning and when does one stop and the other begins? Um, because I think, you know, I, I say frequently that this stuff doesn't do any good locked up in my head. We got to share it with people so we can, we can all heal together. So if you don't mind sharing what's locked up in your head, uh, that's a, that's a topic I don't know that we've covered too well on this podcast before. So please, you know, hover on that if you would. Yeah. I mean, I'll share a little bit what I know. Like I said, I'm not a grief expert, but I do know a little bit. So um, when I'm thinking about grief, I think about um, our, that internal experience that we have. Um, grief is what we experience when there is a loss. Um, and so many times we just associate grief with death, um, but I think it's associated with any type of loss. So just a loss of connection. And so when I'm thinking about um, someone that loses their job, they experience grief. Someone who goes through a bad breakup or a divorce, there's an experience of grief that happens, not just for those individuals, but even for the family that's experienced that. Um, when I think about COVID-19 and I think about just the loss of the normalcy that we have, I think about grief. I think a lot of us had experienced some of those grief symptoms. Um, and so that's that internal, that private response that we have to a loss. It could be a shared loss or an individual loss. And so when I think about mourning, I'm thinking about the rituals that surround grief. It's that period directly after the loss has happened. Um, and there's not a time frame that i would put on it, but it's kind of that shared social response that we have. So when we're looking at mourning, that's when we're looking at people that have funerals or memorial services or candlelight vigils or whatever type of ritual that you put around that grieving process to kind of help some people say to give you closure. Um, you know, that's probably a whole other discussion. I don't, I don't know what closure looks like or what it looks probably different for different people. Um, but I do know that grief needs to be ritualized. And so I think that encompasses that mourning process. That's really well put. I've never considered the two like that, so I appreciate that. I always learn so much in these these interviews. You bring up like closure, and we can we can touch on that briefly. Do we ever get closure? And I'll put that in air quotes because the audience yeah. can't see it. But you know, I mean, there's a debate about that, right? Whether or not we yeah. actually do. What's what's your experience with that? Yeah, and I, I don't I don't know. I mean, I think it's different for different people, and I think maybe some people need to have that language to come to a resolve within themselves. So I don't want to say that we don't ever get closure because some people may feel like they have closure and that's what they need. Um, but I believe that we don't get over grief. I think that grief is something, grief is a part of love and grief is something that we carry with us. There's a great book by um, Megan Devine. I think it's called, it's okay that you're not okay. 
And she talks a lot about um, how we move forward with grief and we carry it with us because it's a part of love. Um, So when I think about closure and it's the ending of a thing, I don't know if that's really what the goal of grief is. I don't know if the goal is to get over it and close that chapter and move forward. Um, Because if love is there, I think we're always going to carry a piece of that with us. That's reasonably fair to say. It seems maybe more like the appropriate assignment of closure would be to the mourning because it's a process, but the grief is almost like a, like a scar maybe. So, Mm. you know, you're, you don't necessarily have to be influenced by it on a daily basis after a certain period of time, but it's, but it doesn't just go away. Right. Right. I like the way you said that. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just cool thinking thinking out loud like this uh, for for me too with, with grief um, and loss. What what it indicates to me because I do a lot of emotional functioning and we center on uh, the ten emotions as researched by Carol Izzard. Um, one of those being sadness. Sadness's uh, adaptive function is to tell us that our expectations didn't get met. So if we if we have this expectation yeah. that somebody's going to live <laughs> longer than they do, not, I almost said forever, um, but I think sometimes <laughs> we think that right unconsciously. Yeah. Um, or if we we get surprised by the job loss that we didn't expect, you know, in any of these expectations, we get dumped or broken up with, or um, we totally expected to win the championship and we didn't. There's a mm-hmm. sadness component there, right? And so if we can learn to endure and tolerate the emotion of the sadness, then it has applicability to the, the overall experience of the grief. Um, and some are bigger than others, obviously. And I think maybe the magnitude impacts our life in such a way that, you know, we, we need some, some professional processing with that. So what are some, what are some, I guess, some, some tips and techniques that you might, you fall back on that are some of your favorites when you, when you work with people who are experiencing this very heavy grief and loss? Yeah, I think the first one is, you know, just simple. I don't know if it's a tip or tool or technique, um, but it's just acknowledging what you feel. I think so many times we don't take the moment to actually feel our feelings. We don't um, like something happens and we feel something and we just kind of get busy and do something else. Like we don't take a moment to breathe into that space. Notice what it is like, oh, my God, where do I feel that in my body? Is Why is my stomach tight? Like really sit and get curious and explore like what that is. So I would say first, like acknowledging and feeling what you feel. And I always, I think journaling is a great way, writing it out. Um, some people um, get, are able to process emotions like that. I'm not so much a writer personally. It's so funny because I tell clients to do things and I'm like, you don't even do that yourself, girl. What are you talking about? <laughs> so um, other options, uh, like movement. I know that, you know, emotions attach to our body and, you know, trauma attaches to our body. And so we have to work that out. So for some that may look like doing yoga or Pilates for others that might look like having a one-on-one dance party with yourself, you know, it doesn't have to be a structured activity, but just doing something to get some movement. And that's not saying that the feeling's going to go away or the emotion's going to go away, but I always challenge people to when they do something like that notice what you're feeling before you start it and then notice how you feel after not saying it's going to go away but just notice if there's any shifts or changes like did the knot in your stomach move to your chest or like now do you have a headache like just noticing that there are shifts and changes I think is powerful so people know like oh what I feel now is not always going to feel like this things do shift and they do move and they do change I think taking the perspective of just noticing too and observing pushes you into a place of neutrality so that you're not judging the the experience mm-hmm. too, which I think a lot of us tend to do. So I appreciate that that commentary. 
it, it actually makes for a nice segue into some of your area of, of um, specialty, which is trauma work. So a lot of trauma in my experience has been um, misunderstood, you know, or, or at least poorly understood as the person experiences whatever mm-hmm. they, they do. Uh, they can't put words to it. They don't know how to, you know, process it accurately. So how, how does this translate then as far as the labeling and the claiming and the naming and that sort of thing? Wait, ask me again. Sorry. I think I got lost in the question. It's not your fault. I think it was me. <laughs> it's not you. It's me. Um, I also <laughs> communicate poorly for a guy who teaches people how to communicate. No. So um, with, with regard to like identifying, naming, claiming the, the emotional experience and the feeling physiologically too, right? How does that translate to trauma experience um, as opposed to grief or loss and how are they maybe similar or, or not? Yeah, I think there's a lot of similarities there. Um, I think with trauma, there is a, a verbal component that I think a lot of people who aren't clinical expect people be, to be able to express what happened and to tell the story of what happened. Mm-hmm. But know in trauma what happens is you know that part of our brain where we have that verbal processing it kind of goes offline it shuts down because we're in that survival mode um and so a lot of things that are left after a traumatic experience is just the feeling um is the body sensation that you notice and i think it can be difficult for those who've experienced something traumatic to sit with it to notice it um on their own um that's why i feel like therapy is such an important safe space for people to process when they've had something like that because it can be difficult to do on your own and to notice and um you know a lot of times it it can feel like you're re-experiencing it all over again it's like it's happening all over again so you don't want to feel um you try to block it out you have that avoidance or sometimes you know, what we call dissociation is just kind of like feeling like you're not inside your body anymore, not attached to yourself. You're detaching from that feeling because it's too painful or overwhelming. So I think it is a little bit different with trauma. Um, um, I don't know if I would encourage my client to, yeah, just go sit with that feeling on your own and come back and tell me how that worked. Um, I would want to process that with them in therapy together to make sure that they're safe and to um, help them and co-regulate, you know, uh, teach them coping skills in session and say, oh, that feeling is big. Let's take a deep breath right there together. Notice that you're here, you're safe now. That was then, this is now. I know I just said a whole lot of things and went probably 10 different directions with that answer, but there are similarities. And I think the way that I would treat it probably would be different as a clinician. No, I find myself agreeing with you a lot there, and it's a, but it's a new approach. It's not something that I'm familiar with with regard to how you walk somebody through it and purposely don't tell them to go do it on their own. And I'm, I'm wondering what the, the risk is there. Cause I can't, I can't quite put my finger on it. Yeah. I think until I know that it's an established client, I think for a new client, I wouldn't suggest that until I know that this client has established coping skills and mechanisms that they have in place that they can regulate if they get uncomfortable. Um, if they can, then I would, yes, encourage you to feel it, notice, put in place what you've learned and see what shifts. For a new client that I that we haven't established that yet, I don't think I'm going to assign them the homework to, yeah, notice what you feel and breathe through it um, because it can be overwhelming and scary and it can cause some people to not return to therapy. Like, oh my God, that was the worst thing I've ever experienced. I'm never going back. She's terrible. Um, and we, we want them to feel safe. So until we establish that safety, um, that's probably why I would take that different approach. 
That makes sense. One of the things that we teach our uh, junior clinicians when they're when they're you know in school or fresh out of school and newly licensed is you don't you don't unzip somebody without the ability to zip them back up before they leave. And I, I think yes. what you're alluding to there is the the risk that they could un- inadvertently unzip themselves in their own home and then <laughs> slip into a panic attack or yeah. or, uh, or like you say you know they they follow your instruction and it doesn't work then they don't want to come back and that's that's unfortunate. Because uh, then, not only you know, are they not getting the help they need, it could it could give a black eye to the whole profession. They they don't come back yes. to anybody. Um, yeah, which is not what we want for sure. Yeah, you Talk- said that so much better than me. <laughs> well, you teed it up. You, uh, you got my <laughs> got my brain juices flowing. The um, the idea of trauma. What is it for you? Your perspective. We hear a lot of different definitions, but what's what's your interpretation or definition of trauma? Yeah, I just think it's any experience that overwhelms your ability to cope. That's um, really go, Yeah, some people go through like a checklist of things and these lengthy, yeah, it's any experience that overwhelms our ability to cope. So that can be a conversation that was traumatic. That can be watching something on Instagram that was traumatic. That can be an experience. Uh, and it can even, I think it's not always what happens to you but it can also be what didn't happen for you. Maybe you had expectation for something. uh, Maybe something happened and you were expecting a response and you didn't get that response. Sometimes the lack of what happened is more traumatic than what happened to you. If that makes sense. You mean like a a child going to a, a parent and getting invalidated? Absolutely. Yep. Yes, sharing that something happened and the parents that didn't happen. Get out of here! Like no way. Or it doesn't matter, or they or they minimize it or belittle it. Minimizing, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Good call. Um, I've seen with clients that's what stuck with them. Not so much what happened, but when they went to that parent and that invalidating uh, response they got, that's what they have to process. We recently had uh, an interview with a gal named Shauna Springer. She's she goes by Doc Springer and. Um, that's her website that she, she works a lot in this realm. It was on a, it was on a different podcast and she was talking about how we need to get rid of the D in PTSD and really call it I for injury because it's, it's an injury to the, the structure of the brain. Uh, the, the, the fight or flight, the limbic system doesn't respond as well as it does after the trauma than before. It's really a physiological injury. And I, again, I found myself agreeing with that too in, in concept, but really, what you're alluding to there is so much lower level than our book, the DSM, uh, for, mm-hmm. the, for the listening audience, it's the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders that we use to diagnose things and send claims off to insurance and so forth. Your your mm-hmm. bar is so much lower than the than the book's criteria, and unfortunately, I'll soapbox about this until it changes. We our profession doesn't allow for insurance reimbursement for preventative care. And that's a shame. And it keeps people from coming in and because you basically have to be broken before you can get treatment. And yeah. what you described there, you know, simply being invalidated as a, as a trauma or trauma as in, as invalidation does not meet diagnostic criteria. So how do you work with that? We've got the, all the other catch all adjustment disorder, I guess, but, but what do you say to somebody where you, you validate what they've experienced? It doesn't rise to the level of disorder, but you still want to get compensated for your time and they don't want to have to pay cash out of pocket because they're already paying their insurance premium. Like how, how do we fix this? How do we at least resolve it in the temporary until we fix it? 
Really, Jake? You expect me to answer that? Yeah, <laughs> man. I got you in the show for a reason. Come on. Wave your wand. Mean, solve the world's problems. If I had that answer, I think, oh, my God. I I don't know. That That is so complicated and it's so complex. And I don't know. I think I'll say this. When I worked at an agency in Atlanta, I did community mental health before I had my own practice. <clears throat> And, um, had an amazing supervisor and she encouraged, um, I I think that's where I got my definition of what trauma was and to help us get creative in the way that we write, get creative in the way that we, um, of course, you know, you have to meet some criteria, but get creative in the way that you, um, view the presenting problems. You know what I mean? Um, I'm trying to say something without saying something, but yeah, just, yeah. Don't be so rigid. In other words, yeah, not to be so rigid and to really look at things from a holistic view and see like, how is this really impacting their daily functioning? Like it may not look like it's spelled out in the DSM, but you know, getting really um, curious in your questioning and really finding out the impact that that experience had and see like, Oh, this is really impacting them on a much wider scale. This does fit the criteria. Um, I think sometimes we can get hung up in our checklists and our assessments and the questions that are on the list without kind of digging a little bit deeper to find out the true impact. Yeah. It's, it's like we lean a little too far into the medical model sometimes and we, we forget that we have human beings in front of us that are, uh, that, that don't fit into nice, neat little tidy boxes do you work do you work with uh children adults couples families all the above what what do you what's your what's your particular bailiwick yeah right now it's uh primarily adults uh women um but i have worked with all of the above so children and i quickly realized that i did not like play therapy so yeah me either (laughs) (laughs) when i went to private practice i was like nope i'm not seeing any kids um but i do i enjoy working with teens so like from 13 up i love working with teenagers um and so i i'll work with those adolescents and then my young adults um i don't dabble too much into couples work um do some family work um i feel like Oh, couples. That's a topic. I love couples. I'm a couple. We were a couple in therapy, like I said. Right. So it's just, a, I think that's another specialization that you have to really be passionate about. Like with play therapy, you got to be passionate about that. Same with couples work. Um, there's so many um, different um, theories that you can practice from. And you just got to find something that you want to buckle down in. And I, I hadn't found that yet. So talk to me a little bit about why trauma interests you or draws you because in my experience you know to, collectively we, we get when we're in public and we're talking about what we do for a living people are like oh I could never do that right and <laughs> it's like it's like any profession that's that's out there on the fringes you know dealing on the front lines of whatever it is like oh, I just I just rather do sales or whatever but um, <laughs> even within the profession though we have people who love working with certain demographics uh, groups uh, presentations, clinical or otherwise, how'd you pick trauma? I think it was when I was at this agency, I had a, uh, there was, I was introduced to this woman. Her name is Jennifer Packard and she, I went to one of her trauma trainings and I don't know what it was, but I literally was like, this is what I want to do. Um, just 
the knowledge that she had about trauma and how it impacts the brain, it impacts the body and the work that she's doing. And she's trained in EMDR. I'm trained in EMDR now. Um, and, um, I don't know. I, I think it was just her approach. And, you know, I always tell her like, she's one of my mentors from afar now, but I really appreciated the way that she talked about it, the way that she, um, kind of laid it out and I said you know what I think that's what I want because that can be a topic that seems scary for people um for young clinicians they don't want to oh god they have Mm -hmm. what kind of trajectory oh no give that to a more experienced clinician I was that young clinician that was like oh oh yeah I'll I'll do it I'll jump in you know of course with very good supervision but um I don't know if I can give you like a specific answer like what drew me to it um I, I think what I love seeing is walking with people through really, really dark places in their life. Um, trauma work to me is sacred. Um, when they've experienced something that overwhelmed their ability to cope and things that can be unspeakable for them to sit in a room and to share those experiences and to process that. And then to see them work through that and move through that and come out on the other side. That's just such a sacred space to me. And I'm just so honored when people share their stories and their journey with me. There's a a difference between acute trauma based on an, an event or an episode and then chronic trauma, you know, over a lifetime or over several generations. Um, If you wouldn't mind, share a little bit of insight to the, to the audience as to what the differences are and how, again, how they're similar or dissimilar. Yeah. So yeah, you just said it like with acute trauma, it's like maybe one experience that can be like, you had a really bad car accident, right? Um, Or you had like one um, instance of a sexual abuse, like a a specific event that happened that did not reoccur. Um, And when we're looking at chronic, you know, we're looking at what we label as kind of like complex trauma, right? So that's when you've had maybe multiple experiences that have happened to you over time. So maybe that looks like um, you grew up in a household where there was domestic violence. Uh, You had an alcoholic parent. Um, Another parent was diagnosed with a mental health illness and you experienced uh, physical abuse in a romantic relationship. You've had complex from multiple things that have happened to you over time. And so there's a lot more processing that happens because there's a lot more events to process. And then I think some of the messages that we start to internalize about ourselves when we experience complex trauma, right? With acute trauma, I don't know. Definitely there are um, like some negative messages that you can believe about yourself. But I think when things happen over time, you develop definitely more of a narrative of like, you know, I'm bad or I caused it or it's my fault. And there are these like negative core beliefs that we really develop about ourselves. And so I think there's a lot more processing that has to happen and unraveling that has to happen to really get to the root of like, no, you're not a bad person. You didn't do a bad thing. Something happened to you and you've internalized that. So how can we create a new narrative? How can you create, you know, a more positive cognition about yourself, a positive thought about yourself? And that's kind of what, when we talk about EMDR, which stands for um, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, that's part of what that therapy is. It's finding what is that negative core belief that you believe about yourself while processing a lot of the memories and the images and the body sensations that you have. And once we process that and kind of desensitize ourselves to that, what is, what would you like to believe about yourself? 
instead of I am bad or I am shameful or it was my fault or I'm powerless? What would you prefer to believe about yourself and really instilling a more positive cognition? Do you follow ways with that? Sorry. Yeah. Do do you follow Brene Brown? Oh yeah. I love Brene Brown. Yeah. That sounds a lot similar to what, to what she says. It's not, you are, you are not a bad person. You had a bad thing happen. Uh, Uh, mm -hmm. Huge reframe there. Yeah. So, for people. So I would be remiss if I didn't bring this up. You are a black woman and you work in a, a you know, highly diverse community there in, in Georgia. How much of trauma is due to cultural um, experiences that are, you know, longstanding? I mean, we can say racism, but I, I, I hate using racism because it's so overused these days. And I think that the definition's almost been lost, but we can certainly discuss that too. And what your experience has been and how many of your clients may present with that too. And what we may, I'm asking a lot of questions right now. One of those things that I tell you not to do in grad schools, don't ask multiple questions. Cause it's like, which one should I answer? But um, <laughs> broadly, broadly maybe address that. So for not only the listening audience, but also we have clinicians in our listening audience too. What can we take away from your perspective and your experience yeah. Um, Knowing that you're not speaking on behalf of the entire black community. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. No. And I think, you know, I might even push back on the comment you made a little bit about, you know, race. I think racism is a huge part of the the trauma that black people have experienced. Um, and I know it can feel like it's overused a lot. And I think as a person of the community and that has experienced it a lot, um, I wouldn't say that it's overused. Um, I would say that it's a real lived experience that we experience sometimes on a daily basis. I just a personal example, but like a, a microaggression that happened to me two weeks ago, I was presenting at a parent talk at a school and I was the first one to log on to the zoom call. And it was just the PTA president that was on. And she assumed that I was a parent that was on. And so she was like, Oh, what grade is your kid in blah, blah, blah. I was like, Oh no. I said, I don't have a child at the school. I said, I am um, here to present tonight. And she was like, Oh, you're the presenter. And that was literally her tone and her facial. Well, you guys can't see my facial expression, but I said, yes, I'm the presenter. She was like, Oh, okay. And I'm like, but for me, like that happens a lot. That happens all the time. Um, So let me, let me interrupt real quick. People may not know that term. What's, what is a microaggression and how is that an example of one? Yeah, I don't know if I have the actual definition, but a, a, a microaggression is something that is kind of a, a small statement or phrase or gesture that most people would think is not harmful, but it, it speaks to invalidate people of color. It, I hope that's a good definition. And, that might be. I'm, I don't work in DNI work, so yeah. you no, that, put me out there. I think that makes a lot of sense. It's perfect. So explain how that one uh, was was offensive. Because I think I know, but I'd like you to tell yeah. me. Yeah. Um, well, number one, that I, that you assumed that I was a parent. Um, and when I said, no, I'm the presenter, it was the shock and the surprise. that right. Oh, you're the presenter. Um, it, it just, it's, it's really hard to explain when you're on the other side of it, you know? Um and when it, you like you have an emotional attachment to it, because I feel like that's happened to me quite a few times. I've shown up in spaces, white spaces, where I was the the presenter that are viewed as the ex- 
expert in the room. And then it was like, oh, you, you are? Oh, and then you kind of get the questions of like, oh, well, what school did you go to? And it's like this kind of, I say interrogation process. It's probably more like, you know, finding out, being more inquisitive about you. But yeah, that was definitely a microaggression that I experienced uh, recently. And I, I think those things happen more than not um, on many different levels. And I'm, there's plenty of examples, you know, we can give. I, I think I experienced it a lot. I told you I worked in a high-end retail store and I experienced that a lot at the store um, as an employee where people would not want me to assist them. White people would not want me to assist them, but they would want to go to one of my white counterparts to assist them. Really? So, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I have stories for days. That's probably a whole other podcast we could do, but yeah, there's, there's plenty of stories and um, instances. So I think that the lived experience of black people is um, one that, that has endured a lot of racism. And I think a lot of people think that racism is something of the past or that exists or it doesn't happen as much as we think it does. But I know from personal experience that it can happen on a daily basis. So help me, help me understand this differently. Cause my, my, definition of racism is is like an intent right an intent to harm um mm-hmm. but it's sounding more like and this is why i said i thought it was overused or misused it's sounding mm-hmm. more like racism can be that but also an unconscious uh trampling trampling that's not a word uh trampling <laughs> of somebody's autonomy or their yeah. or their legitimacy so it can yes. be un- we can have unconscious exhibitions mm-hmm. of racism too then yeah most of the time that i have it's usually unconscious it's usually not intentional like a direct threat of hurt or something that's you know overt um it's usually been that you know <clears throat> unconscious unintentional bias that shows up um and i think there's this amazing um you heard of the the harvard implicit bias like assessment yes it's free assessment online and you know i i actually i think everybody should take it not just you know people that are not of color i think all people because i think we all have bias right i have bias i have um things that i think of people groups including my own people group that i have you know certain assumptions of and i think we should all kind of explore and check that and figure out like where are the areas that i should be aware of um and areas of growth for myself that's something that i'm consciously trying to work on too um, so yeah, that's just a little plug there for all that one to kind of grow a little bit more aware. And I think it's so important, especially for clinicians, um, clinicians that do work with people of color to be aware of those biases and find out, you know, where are some of yours, um, and kind of explore that and doing your own work is going to be so important because of course, nobody as a therapist, we're here to help. We're not here to do, um, harm. Um, but sometimes unintentionally it can be done. When we're talking about um, how to fight this, uh, I've I've taken the position that humility is usually a good thing, right? So we don't go in making broad assumptions. And yet, paradoxically, through school, and I don't know if this has changed in the last 10 or 11 years, but paradoxically through school, we get these you know multicultural training classes, which are all of one semester and don't do a deep dive mm-hmm. into anything. But then we're supposed to come out being like, trained (laughs) and and, uh, as if as if right you can know everything about somebody's culture and that though is the presumption it's like well you can make these certain generalizations in these certain areas and the whole time I'm sitting there cringing gritting my teeth I'm like no that's a terrible idea like what we should be doing is out of humility asking people what their experiences are individually 
And I, and I got so much blowback for that because it was like, you're not honoring, you know, the, the, the culture and stuff. And I'm like, no, actually, I think I'm honoring it deeper, but maybe I'm off. (laughs) I don't know. Like, is, is that the way that we examine our blind spots and try to not be so harmful, whether intentional or unintentional is just simply through humility or is that too oversimplified? No, I think, no, I think, yeah, I think we overcomplicate it sometimes and that you're absolutely right. No, you are spot on through humility, uh, through expressing that curiosity um, and through intimate conversations with individuals because no two people from the same people group are going to have the same experiences or think the same way. So yeah, I, I think that is the way that we should approach it. Getting curious about everyone's individual experiences. Now, my husband's a black man as well, um, but he has not had as many experiences that I have had, um, which is interesting. So for him, he probably would say, yeah, he experienced, and this is interesting, as a black man, he would say that he experiences black uh, racism a little bit less than I do, um, but I work in more white spaces than he does. So that might be give or take there, but yeah, everyone has their own history, their own biography. And so I think we do need to get curious and um, not just assume something about a group because you had that one multicultural class way back in college. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that. And one of the things that, you know, humble brag for something else we do, which is this guns and mental health stuff is, you know, we're trying to teach firearms culture to clinicians so that the firearms owners don't get skittish and weird about coming into Mm -hmm. counseling um, because we're losing a lot of them to suicide because they don't get into counseling and then they take their own lives. And a lot yeah. of that is just this judginess that happens around that realm. And you know, it's great to have a crash course in something, but if you really want to get into it, you, you got to live the culture. You got to, you got to go take some time and then, and you never, there's no arrival point, right? If you ever arrive, that's when you know you're sunk. <laughs> you're like, yeah. oh, I know everything there is to know about fill in the blank. Um, yes. I hope not because then you would be God. Um, <laughs> there was a, I had a, I had a guest on a few weeks ago. Her name's Jessica Harris, also a black lady. And she, a clinician who said that she doesn't believe that clinicians, how did she phrase this? Clinicians who consider themselves trauma-informed aren't truly trauma-informed unless they understand the trauma of racism throughout a culture. And I was like, that's cr- like, you can't see me blowing my mind with my fingers, but that's the sound I just made. Um, mind yeah, yeah, that's good. Is, is that your experience too? Like you, there's, there's a lot of generational trauma through race, interracial um, judgment and stigma. Absolutely. Yeah. I do some talks at um, some different schools and I kind of talk, oh yeah, I didn't say that earlier, but I, I help schools, principals, teachers, educators understand the impact of trauma and how it shows up in the classroom. Right. But then there's also this other piece that I say that we can't talk about trauma. Like she says, unless we're talking about race and racism and understanding how that impacts not just our kids, but the families that are walking through the doors and maybe some stigma that they have with schools or with administration, maybe some historical trauma that they've had themselves. Um, And, you know, just when we look at the U.S. and the the history that we've had with um, desegregating schools and um, things of that nature, there is a lot of historical trauma that is just in our blood and in our genes. There's an amazing book. Um, I wish I had it sitting next to me, but it's called my grandmother's hand, and I do not want to butcher the author's name, but I think it's Resma 
and I cannot think of his last name. I'm going to try to Google it real quick, but it's about racialized trauma. And I think every single clinician needs to read this book. Um, it's mind blowing for me. And um, it really takes a, um, a, like a somatic approach, like a mind body approach to uh, healing trauma and uh, kind of moving through that. So I love it. He studies the work of um, Bessel van der Kolk, which is the body yeah. keeps the score. He studies a lot about somatic experiencing, uh, Stephen Porges with polyvagal theory. So he integrates all of this and applies it to racialized trauma. And I think it's just an amazing book that every clinician should read. My Grandmother's Hands. And if I could find the book, My Grandmother's Hands, you'll find it. Yeah, I just looked it up. My Grandmother's Hands and the author is... Resma with two A's at the end, Menachem, M-E-N-A-K-E-M. Yes, phenomenal book. You know, so now we're talking about um, generational trauma and and um, and cultural trauma. Uh, it it starts to sound a little bit like a lot of things can bring trauma. So uh, for me, I was bullied from third grade through twelfth, right? And that's not something you would normally suspect of a six foot, one inch, 200 pound man. You know, maybe the reason I have yeah. 200 pounds is because I was <laughs> bullied and I went to the gym a lot. Um, but we talked about power differentials too, you know, with um, just because you may be the same race, uh, power differential certainly plays yeah. in too, you know, pr- principal to student and people who don't, uh, yeah. don't handle their, their power well, you know, so to speak. And without sounding like we need to all fear for everything because everything is trauma, um, yeah. how do we, how do we strike the balance there? Well, about being mindful of people's experiences while also not overplaying it to the point that we make, make everyone a victim. Mm, that's a good, yeah, that's good. Um, I think it's just a balance of, of honoring their experience and kind of, kind of letting people lead the way. Like, you know, I never take, when I'm in the room with a client, I never take on the role as the expert in the room. I think that you are the expert on your life, right? And so, you know, I do definitely a client-centered approach. So I kind of follow your lead. But yeah, um, I don't know if I'm going to be answering your question at this point, but um, there is that fine line of like, because you know of some life experiences that you just because I know somebody's life experiences does not mean that I'm going to, as a therapist, that I'm not going to challenge them and I'm not going to push them and have high expectations of them. The same with children. I tell this to educators, you know, just because we are high on support and nurturing does not mean that if we're, we have to be high on expectations too. Um, We can't have low expectations and high support because then we're just kind of being permissive, right? And not hold having a standard for them and having goals and aspirations for them to reach. But if we're the opposite, like if we're really high on expectations and standards and very low on support and nurturing, then that's kind of more of that punitive approach that we're taking. So I think we need to have both and, right? We have to have high expectations, but also high support and um, kind of supporting our clients and just people that we do life with. That was a phenomenal answer. I didn't have an answer. I, when that came out of my mouth, I was like, I don't even know how I would answer this. And I think you nailed it with the go by going to the educational, um, realm where you, you got nurturing and support, right? And this is, this is object relations theory too, right? You got the, the, the critical parent or, or transactional analysis, you know, critical parent, nurturing parent, and, um, yeah. so on and so forth. But the point is, 
we don't remove standard and expectations simply because we validate somebody's um, horrible yes. lived experience, right? So, yes. And, and I think the first step toward that is is just being a, a listening empathic audience um, where we where we don't presume that we know and we listen with full value to what they have to say because we, you know, it's like if it was it was emotionally something or other for you, that's it. That's the end of the story. I don't get to question that. Um, I can help you shape it. I can help you come through it with a different context, but I don't get to challenge it and say that's that's not accurate. Um, that's why experiential comparisons are so useless. <laughs> like we all experience things differently, you know. Uh, yeah. There is no well. If I were you, I wouldn't have because if I were you, I mm-hmm. would have. And Christian Conti talks about that in his yield theory too. So uh, that's a phenomenal answer. Um, you know, speaking speaking of hand-me-down trauma that, you know, may have affected people. I want to shift back into the religious scope uh, because there's a lot of people who've been wounded by religion and yet they find a deep sense of spirituality that they want to pursue. And sometimes those are in conflict with what they've been told by big religion about going to counseling. You know, it's, it's witchcraft, it's of the occult, it's it's whatever it is. And it it couldn't be further from the truth. How do you work with those faith-based sectors and helping them change their mind about this profession that we we do. Yeah, I think I normally start with just talking about uh, what mental health is and kind of talking about, you know, how mental health is part of our physical health. Like we can't separate our mental health from our physical health because we're clearly in one body, right? Our brain, mind is inside of our body. And so if we're um, talking to people, you know, if we're using scripture, uh, you know, I wish above all things that you prosper and be in good health, right? Um, the word says that. Um, if we're talking about being, God wants us to be in good health, that includes our mind. And so if we're sick and we go to a doctor, if we get a cold and we go to a doctor, we break a leg, we go to a doctor. What happens when we have a emotional or a mental injury that we experience when we experience a trauma, right? We need to go see someone that is skilled and licensed and professional that can help us kind of work through that. You know, if we break a bone, we go get a cast put on, but what happens when we have an emotional wound, we need to go to a therapist and give us that type of a cast, you know, an emotional cast, some support around that, that we need. And so I think when I start by talking about that as part of our physical health, people are a little bit more open and they start to see the connections as like, oh, okay, yeah, you're right. I I, I do get, if I got diabetes, I'm going to go take some insulin. You know, if I have depression, it might mean that I might need some medication to support me through this time. So that's kind of how I approach it in the beginning. Do you, do you find a lot of people are, um, I'm trying to think how to phrase this. Are they still suspicious throughout the process or do they go over pretty quickly? Um, it's a mixed bag. Uh, usually it takes some, like people that have like, you know, that deep entrenched, like religious trauma or messages that they've been told for, for years. Um, yeah, it usually takes time. They're a little bit more skeptical when they come in. Um, and it's just like that fine line that you have to walk. Um, you know, I probably wouldn't come in talking about, you know, energies in our body and noticing your chakras to somebody that's like (laughs) hardcore Christian. (laughs) Um, but, um, yeah, you, you take baby steps, you take baby steps. 
What's the what's the best success that you've seen with somebody who's um, been of the spiritual community? We're mostly talking about Christian, but I mean, I assume yeah. you work with other faiths too, and their experience with psychotherapy. What's what's the one that stands out to you? Um, one, just one saying like, oh, this wasn't as bad as I thought it was. Like, not realizing like, oh, we're just gonna have a conversation. Like, I don't know what they thought I was going to do when they came in. Like, did you thought, think I was going to like attach you to like some court? Like, they're like, this is, this is good. Like, I was like, yeah, this, should, this is what we're going to do every week. We're just going to talk about and process how you're feeling. And I'm going to maybe teach you some breathing techniques. You're going to try them at home. You're going to come back and tell me how that went. And so just, I think people giving it a try and realizing like, I'm not here to tell you, and I think there's also a misconception that, you know, therapists give advice and they tell you what to do with your life and they, you know, you go and change all these things. And it's like, no, actually, I'm not, I'm never going to tell you what you need to do. We're going to process it together and, you know, help you decide what the best choice is for you. Um, but I think that's the biggest misconception that, you know, I don't need nobody to tell me what to do. Like only God can tell me what to do. You're right. I'm not here to change that for you, but I'm here to help you process some of those emotions. That's awesome. That's really well stated. Uh, are you finding too that the pastors? This has been my experience. I'm just seeing if it's yours too. The pastors are like really relieved that they have somebody to point to now that they don't have to carry the burdens themselves. You're smiling and nodding. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of before our pastors kind of were burdened with a lot of that, and they weren't trained to do that. Right? They they didn't go through the same schooling and the training that we had. Um, they gave great spiritual advice and guidance, but when it came to some more, uh, like clinical issues and things that were kind of above them, that was, that was a lot. And so I think that they are starting to embrace it more now because it's like, Hey, yes, I can pray with you after church and Monday morning, I need you to call this person and they're going to help you the rest of the way. We're going to, you know, kind of do this balance of working our faith, but also what are the practical tools that we need to put in place to really see healing and progress go forward? Cause like we play a part in our healing as well. Um, I do believe, you know, that there are, you know, miraculous things that happen. Um, but a lot of the times, you know, we've got to put in some effort and work behind that too. Yeah. My pastor has always said that, uh, God answers prayers through people. Um, so, yeah. you know, that maybe, maybe miracles do still exist. We, you know, it's tough to chalk it up. It's like, you know, was it a miracle that your cancer went away? Probably, but without the help of the oncologist, you know, that that's an answered prayer. So I, I appreciate that. That's really cool. I'm going to shift gears. You know, I'm, I'm mindful of time. We're coming up on an hour here and I want to be respectful of your evening, but I, I don't want to leave without talking about the pandemic and how we're, our profession has been, you know, we talk a lot about front frontline healthcare workers. My wife's a nurse, you know, she's one of them, but we're getting overwhelmed too. And it's not just in client volume. It's in our own mental ability to handle it. Cause we've been yeah. long seen as the space for everybody to come to and work through their stuff. We've got our own stuff and it's very, very hard. And I'm wondering what you're doing with this, how you're tending to yourself, but also what you're offering to your clients now? Yeah, you're right. It's been a lot. It's been heavy. And I think the one thing that I put in place that has helped me, um, and every clinician can't do this, and I understand that, but I have stopped taking new clients at this time just because I realize that I'm at my capacity and I 
don't, I don't know if I have more that I can offer to new clients. But what I have done in place of that is I I started a um, grief support group that was an eight week group. Actually, tonight's my last night of group that what I'm doing right after this call. Um, But I, because I wanted to be able to provide services um, because it's so needed at such a large scale, but then there's only one of me. And like you said, we have our own things happening and things that are going on. So I was like, what is something that I can do? I can't take on like 10 new clients, but I can offer a support group one night a week where I can see 10 clients at one time and offer some skills and some tools that they can implement. And I can impact 10 people without taking on individual clients, which is a little bit heavier. You all, you know, what goes into, you know, seeing an individual client and what that looks like. So that's something that I've been doing to protect my own space and mental health while still kind of serving my community. That's pretty cool. I think that you should expand your agency, hire some interns, train people up and grow the profession because I think you're awesome. But that's just me projecting my desires onto you. Um. (laughs) (laughs) I've thought about it. I've thought about it. I think that that probably is a long-term goal. I just, yeah, maybe I need to talk to you about what that looks like because it just seems like such a big feat to take on. Um, But I would love to kind of get into some more supervision because I do feel like the the field needs, um, there's a lot of amazing clinicians out there and there's a lot of clinicians that probably could have used um, probably some better supervision and support. Um, And so I do feel like I do want to contribute back in that way because I have, I know I had two amazing clinical supervisors. And so that's the only reason I am the way that I am today. So I do would like to give that back um, to the profession. It's not as heavy of a lift as it looks. Um, If you, and this is for anybody who's listening, who thinks that they're, they might want to undertake something that looks really heavy, but um, don't know if they can do it. Uh, it sounds cartoonish when I talk about stuff that I've done the last five and a half years or so. And I've mentioned some of that before we came on, uh, you know, family, young children business. Um, I also chaired my licensing board for a couple of years, rewrote a bunch of laws in the state, coast a couple podcasts, you know, like it just sounds like, how is that possible? <laughs> and what I've learned is through the, you know, through the reading the works of Carl Jung and some of my own, you know, mentorship from Christian Conti is that the human spirit and the human psyche being limitless in its capacity means that um, you can always take on more than you realize. And so I would say this, you can do it. It's not that hard. Um, And if you um, set aside the idea that like you are limited, um, amazing things start happening. Um, And it, and it doesn't feel so much like work after a while too. So I'll be happy to help you figure that out. I obviously don't know, you know, business laws in Georgia, but I can, I can certainly (laughs) tell you conceptually about what, you know, what, what potholes not to step in because Lindsay and I have certainly stepped in our fair share. Um, but it's in it and it doesn't have to be a, a gigantic monumental undertaking with a whole bunch of sacrifice. You start small and you start, you know, growing incrementally. And before you know it, you're like, Holy cow, we're, we're doing it. Like we're really shepherding a lot of new clinicians through the profession the right way. And, um, wow. and it's, it is neat. It's neat to see the the healing augment, you know, and, um, yeah. that's what we're here for, right? There's, there's no shortage of hurt. So we don't need to be, you know, market competitive about it. Right. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Hey, so, um, I'm going to let you go to do your group, but, uh, the way I, try to conclude these podcasts is I ask you one thing that you want to leave with the listening audience, uh, that may, you know, they may want to take away with them or 
or both, <laughs> but or one thing that maybe you uh, understand differently after the conversation. They could be the same thing. They could be different. But what do you want to leave everybody with? Oh, I hate when people put me on the spot with these kinds of questions. I'm I always sorry, need to I should have emailed this to you. <laughs> you said what? I said, I'm sorry, I should have emailed this to you in advance. <laughs> no, it's okay. It's totally okay. It just I'm going to start keeping something in my back pocket to say. Okay, something I want to leave the listening audience with. Um, I think what I would say is that well, first of all, this year has been tough uh, for more than one reason. And whatever you're experiencing, um, I just want you to know that you're not crazy. I think it's good for people to know that what you're experiencing, your body and your brain is responding the way it should respond. Um, it's normal. It's trying to protect you. And so you are not crazy. You are okay. And um, it's okay to get therapy. I think that's the message I try to tell people that, Therapy is not just for crisis. Let's not wait and reserve making that call for a crisis to happen. Um, but let's use it as that preventative measure. Um, and like you said, you know, we know the challenges that we have when it comes to um, the medical model and, you know, using insurance for that. Um, but there are so many clinicians out there that see clients at reduced rates that had that take on pro bono clients, um, a lot of agencies that do that. And so there is support out there for you um, if you want it and if you need it. That was beautiful. The part about your your body and your brain are responding exactly the way they should. That, that really hits me well. Um, I like that. Thank you for that. So um, I appreciate your time. This has been awesome. I'm glad we finally got to connect. Um, yes. <laughs> nobody knows this, but we were supposed <laughs> to have this podcast like two months ago, but then her husband surprised <laughs> her with a, uh, an anniversary vacation. <laughs> and uh, yes. we all need that from time to time. So thank you, Brittany. It's been awesome to get to know you. And yeah, definitely reach out anytime if you want to, you know, you want some, some feedback on how to, how to go about the, the opening up of your business and uh, taking in, uh, you know, fledgling clinicians. It's, it's probably the, the proudest thing I've done as a professional is host those graduate students. Um, mm. It's, it's awesome watching them grow and you get to play professor without having to deal with the university politics, which is great. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Thank you so much for having me. This was a joy. Yeah. Super welcome. On behalf of the Zephyr wellness family and the Naga notes family, we wish you all great mental wellness. Bye-bye.